Sure. Hold up. God knows how my hair and everything's looking now. Oh, you look fine. You look fine. Now that it doesn't matter what noises I make. <laughs> I know. Okay. All right. Here we go. <laughs> one, <laughs> one, two, one, two, three. Cheese. Awesome. Cheese and crackers. Thank you. Cheese and crackers. I'm so hungry. Yeah, I want to go get a snack. <laughs> this is We Can Do This All Day, episode 18, Black Panther Review. Are you ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And this is Cherokee. And, and we, we can, can do, do this, this all, all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. And... It is a glorious Friday night here in the nation's capital. We're a little late in recording this podcast due to some uh, unforeseen difficulties we had last weekend, but we are here, and we are ready, and we are so excited. Joining Emily and I once more, Cherokee Lopez. Cherokee, welcome back to the show. Hi. <laughs> it's great to be back. So happy to have you here. <laughs> We're sorry last weekend was... Kind of oh a, yeah, that was hectic. <laughs> it was that whole day was really messed up because you know you had you had car trouble because you were supposed to be you were supposed to be with uh, Emily live in studio. Yeah. And uh, so no, so Cherokee like, had some car trouble. From start to finish of that day is like everything just went wrong up until I actually got to DC and I was like okay it evened out then but from the moment I woke up to the moment I actually tried to leave it was like are you kidding me? And then we had she, she tried to record remote. And we had some technical issues, so we had to scrap that. And mm -hmm. then, you know, with all of a sudden I had this free time on my, no pun intended, hands, I decided, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go bike up to the comic book shop. And I fell off my bike on the way back home and sprained my hand really badly. But it's doing a lot better now. So, yeah, that whole Saturday, I just kind of, there's a part of me that just kind of wants to wipe much of that from That's... memory. But I'm on the mend. Cherokee is here. We are recording, and we are getting ready to talk about Black Panther, finally. Before we get to that, I guess we do have a little bit of MCU news, including some stuff that I wanted to throw in. It's sort of the Actually, both Emily and I had stuff to throw in at the last minute. But, oh, wait, we got to make sure the ticker tape machine is working. Is it working? It most certainly is. First and foremost, Marvel is delaying most of its 2022 and 2023 releases. Essentially, everything is moving into the release slot of the movie that was supposed to follow it. So, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is moving from March 25th, 2022 to May 6th, when Thor Love and Thunder was supposed to be. Thor Love and Thunder is moving from May 6th to July 8th which is when Black Panther Wakanda Forever was supposed to be. Black Panther Wakanda Forever is moving from July 8th to November 11th for now. We'll talk about that in a moment, which is when, you know, the Captain Marvel sequel, The Marvels, was supposed to be released. And The Marvels is moving from November 11th to February 17th, 2023, when Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania was supposed to come out. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is moving to July 28th, 2023, taking the spot of an as-yet-untitled Marvel movie of some sort that uh, Disney had yet to announce. The release dates of Eternals, which opens up on our calendar today, Spider-Man No Way Home, which is December 17th, and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which is May 5th, 2023, those all remain unaffected, as do, it would appear, all of the upcoming Disney Plus shows. Uh, Emily, you wanted to tell us about the breaking news that we got this afternoon regarding Black Panther Wakanda Forever? Mm, I didn't read the article, so maybe not me. <laughs> Apparently, uh, Letitia Wright 
who plays Shuri, got hurt on set, uh, some sort of accident on set. She got hurt in when they were shooting in Boston back in August. She has been shut down ever since that time, and they've been filming around her these last, like, two and a half to three months. They just made an announcement. Ryan Coogler said he has shot everything he can possibly shoot without her, but she's not going to be ready to go again until probably sometime in early 2022. So they have temporarily suspended production on Black Panther Wakanda Forever. So the production is now shut down, which really sucks. That November 11th, 2022 release date at the moment is still on, but uh, I don't know. That's, they, it sounds like they're going to lose some, lose some time unless they can catch up really quickly once she's on the mend. We were talking about the release dates of the movies that remain unchanged. As I said, today, or is on our calendar, it's November 5th, 2021. Eternals opens up around the world today. I have seen it. It's very different. It is definitely a very different kind of Marvel film. It would probably be best for you to just not even think of it as a Marvel film. You might actually enjoy it a little bit more. It's very, very character driven. Uh, it's a little slow in parts. I still thought the story was was engaging, and the cast is phenomenal. It is a very good character piece. They do some really neat things, and they go to some very interesting places in the MCU. The future looks very interesting, and uh, the Eternals. Uh, we I think I think we're going to see them again in the future. Uh, hope everyone gets a chance to see it if they can. I have some news. <laughs> Ooh, do tell. I don't know if you guys have seen it. I've uh, I've seen a couple articles so far on it, but it's looking like. Marvel Disney Plus is looking to put out a Halloween special for Werewolf by Night. And it's looking like it's going to follow the latest iteration of Werewolf by Night, where it's a Native American, Mexican-American lead. Uh, it looks like the casting for it has been for Gail Garcia Barnell, which I haven't seen him in anything particular, but I'm, I'm super stoked for it. Uh, it looks like it's going to start production sometime in late 2022. Excellent. So if you haven't, if you haven't read the latest Werewolf by Night, Highly recommended. One of the artists from the Black Eyed Peas, Taboo, he's one of the co-creators on it. He is hilarious, awesome, but then great artwork and everything. So I would definitely recommend it if you haven't already read the, the series. That also reminded me, you know, the tr so the trailers that they showed in front of Eternals. I finally got to see that uh, Morbius trailer with, so Jared, with Jared Leto playing Morbius. I don't know a whole lot about Morbius the Living Vampire. If you're a fan of the Sony, you know, Spider-Man stuff, as the trailer says, like the studio that brought you like Spider-Man Far From Home and Venom and all that, well, we get Morbius the Living Vampire added to that universe. I have to admit, I found myself kind of intrigued. The trailer did its job. It may have one convert <laughs> come January. You know what I'm not used to, Mark? What are you not used to? Is you mentioning Venom in the podcast before I do? Oh. <laughs> well, you know, well, you know, well, I first of all, I, I figured I'd, I figured I'd beat you at something today, and by the same token, nobody's perfect. So earlier, may, I was trying cool to figure part. out how I would shoehorn Venom in, but you did it for me. So I cut, cut her off at the pass. You did it. So now on to our main event, Black Panther. This film opened up on February sixteenth. 2018 in the United States. It stars Chadwick Boseman, Michael B. Jordan, Lupita Nyong'o, Denai Guerrero, Letitia Wright, Winston Duke, Angela Bassett, Martin Freeman, Daniel Kaluuya, Forrest Whitaker, and Andy Serkis. The movie was directed by Ryan Coogler. Black Panther is only Coogler's third feature-length film, preceded by Fruitvale Station and the Rocky spin-off Creed. It was written by Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole. At the box office, on a budget of $200 million, Black Panther grossed over $1.348 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars at the box office. 
It is the fifth highest grossing MCU film, just below Age of Ultron and just above Iron Man 3, and the fifth highest grossing superhero film of all time. It is the highest grossing film ever by a black director. Various estimates place it in the top 10 of the highest grossing films of all time. It was the first superhero film ever to get an Oscar nomination for Best Picture, and it won the MCU its first ever Oscars for Best Costume Design, Best Original Score, and Best Production Design, all well-deserved as far as I'm concerned. Because the first thing I wanted to say is that you know, this review is not going to be like reviews of other films in the MCU because Black Panther is a very unique film. It's, it's a very important film for reasons that we will undoubtedly get into before the evening is through. My father is from the Philippines, so technically I'm half Asian. But if I'm being honest, I think it's safe to say I've spent most of my life as basically white. So I've benefited from a lot of the privilege associated with that. And as such... It, it may or may not be that privilege that's kind of allowed me to more easily separate Black Panther the film from Black Panther the phenomenon. Because, you know, while I still think it's a very good film with some noteworthy performances, the cast of that movie is just incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Story elements and visual components, it's still, you know, ranked only like 15 out of 25. And that, that really has less to do with me thinking that it's not a good film. There just happened to be 14 other that I just liked at least a little bit more. In some ways, there are certain things about the film that I find you know, above average, but I don't necessarily love it. I don't watch it a lot. I don't want to harp on this, but every time I see that movie, I just think The Lion King. It's just sort of a lot of story elements that they share. It's kind of like, you know, we've already seen that story. I also recognize this film is incredibly important to a lot of people around the world, especially people of color, particularly anyone of African descent who finally get to see people who look like them like really represented in a major motion picture or a superhero film or a Marvel film. I don't think this film was necessarily going to change Hollywood overnight. I think it would have been a very big ask. And not very fair to hoist such a burden onto it, but it still made a bold and very necessary statement by the very nature of what it was about, who made it, who was in it, and some of the things it had to say about race and white colonialism. Stuff that Ryan Coogler has said he was sure he'd be forced to cut out, but which Kevin Feige himself said should not only stay in the film, but should be the very backbone of the film. So from that perspective, I think this film is extremely important. One thing you said about changing Hollywood overnight and how it's not fair to hoist such a burden onto it. It kind of reminded me how I felt when we recorded the Captain Marvel podcast episode. For whatever reason, I wanted that episode to be really, really good because at the time it was the only female lead movie that we had. And I wanted that podcast to be super high quality and I wanted it to be perfect because, you know, we were making an episode for this thing. Mm -hmm. But then also it wasn't one of my favorite movies in the MCU. Mm -hmm. And so it was hard to really put forward that effort to be like, this has got to be the best episode ever because we have to support this film. And like, yeah, it was good. Like, it's a good movie. But it was also, I think it was number 10 or 11 or something on my list. So I wasn't going to treat it the same way that I would treat, you know, Winter Soldier or something like that. Having said that, though, I really liked Black Panther. I think I liked that while it was sort of reminiscent of these fantastical, like Wakanda in particular's sort of reminiscent of Asgard and the planet from Captain Marvel that tells you how much I remember about that movie, but all the sort of fantasy elements of it. And to see that depicted on Earth, I thought was really nice. And I think 
this particular movie, and sort of in the same way as Into the Spider-Verse, sort of flipped the genre on its head. Mm-hmm. And while it was still fantastical and superhero, it was still more relatable. I can definitely agree to that. I will say, being black myself, there's so many points in this movie that impacted me personally. felt it on a different level, and I know that a lot of people probably just won't understand, um, or they won't feel that impact, but being where you're from, looking the way you do, you don't have a, that certain amount of privilege that others have. So it's like, oh, okay, this is a movie dedicated to that. And you hear a lot of people saying, oh, this is, you know, some argument about social justice and they just want to have more diverse casting and they're shoving it in our throats. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't feel bad about this because it's about time. It's kind of one of the main points about Black Panther and characters like Luke Cage and all these other, like, they were created for a reason at a certain point in time and they are a reflection of the society that they were written for and the sad part is is that society hasn't really changed you know it hasn't been as long as people like to imagine that it's been that black panther fighting the kkk was you know first established it wasn't that long since luke cage was fighting for civil rights these stories aren't that old and The fact that we now have a movie to help represent that is very important and I did feel impacted by having a visual representation on the big screen. Like it's not a direct-to-video, I'm not going to Blockbuster to buy some DVD off the shelf or something like that. Like this was a huge event for a lot of people across the world and that is impactful and I feel like it is very important to talk about and I'm glad that we have like a platform to kind of discuss the impact of it. But when we come down to movies, just the filmmaking itself, it's still not my favorite Marvel movie. Do I love the casting? Of course. You're telling me that I get Angela Bassett and Forrest Whitaker and Martin Freeman and Andy Serkis mm-hmm. in one movie? It's mind-blowing, that cast. <laughs> it's like, I don't care what title you have on it. Like, the casting alone is going to get me in the seat. But when it comes down to the story elements and how things were plotted out and the final edit of this movie, I'm like, there's so much more that could have been done, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. But again, this is all hindsight. This is what I would have done that wasn't done. But is it a great story? Yes. Do I feel that it's the best Marvel movie? No. Is it a good story to tell and is it impactful and does it have purpose? Absolutely. And I Uh, feel like that's something that a lot of people, they go into a comic book movie and they think, oh, I'm just here to watch the good guy fight the bad guy and that's it. It's like, no, comics in themselves, these characters that we are, you know, going to see in themselves have such a deeper meaning. Not just characters of color like Black Panther, but I mean, look at the (laughs) X-Men. I mean, the entire run of their story, their creation, their their movies. They've all been talking about fighting and standing up for civil rights, diversity, being able to feel like you belong in society, and it's impactful. So I feel like it's very important to have these discussions, and I'm happy that there is a movie now that's going to start introducing other societal problems that should be talked about. And I feel, personally, I feel like this encapsulates more of what comics is about. It's not just about the good guy versus the bad guy. It's life as a whole and those gray areas and those areas that need to be talked about that people don't want to talk about. But here's a good introduction to it. (laughs) Part of the beauty of this film is that regardless of who you are, chances are you're going to be able to take something 
away from this film. There's something for everybody in this movie as far as I'm concerned. Even if, you know, some of the messaging doesn't necessarily resonate with you for one reason or another, if you're a comic book fan, if you're a Marvel fan, you've got to watch this movie because it's just, <laughs> this is such a huge cornerstone of Marvel. It's such a huge cornerstone of comic books history. It's still a really good, overall, a really good story and a fun adventure and a neat action film, if nothing else. I'm also very, very glad that it's got kind of something important to say either overtly or subtextually. Does a lot of things, which is, you know, that's not a that's not a bad thing at all. That's a great thing when your movie that's can do you, that. That's when you know you're doing something right in filmmaking. We've worked the bookstore, we've seen the kids come in and how their eyes just light up when they're a, like finally able to see a character that looks like them doing all these fantastic science fiction, you know, action things. And I'm like, yes, it might not be important to the adults, but it is so important mm -hmm. for these younger kids. This doesn't in any way, shape or form negate Captain America or Iron Man or anything like that. But they all get to play together. We do get to see them all play together. I mean, my God, I can't wait till the end game review. Anything that makes the universe richer and give it more depth and make it more interesting. I see absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think that's one of the greatest strengths of this cinematic universe. Well, and I think that would be the hope too, again, going back to the having to change Hollywood overnight and having to be the spectacular film that like, it should be allowed to be a middle MCU film, but because it's so important and because it was the first and only one, it had to be the spectacular, special, perfect thing. The same with Captain Marvel, the same with Black Widow, things like that that they have to be these outstanding, perfect movies. When other people, you know, Captain America's allowed to have a bad movie, Iron Man's allowed to have, ba have mm -hmm. a bad movie, Hulk had a bad yeah. movie, mm -hmm. and it's okay that they did because there's tons of other versions of it. Yeah. But there's only one version of Black Panther out. My hope is that in the future, you know, there would be multiple ones so that it's okay if one flops. Then it's not, this is the only meaningful thing we've ever been able to produce because racism. <laughs> Yeah. You know, so it, has, so it has to be perfect. You know, I'm looking forward to when, you know, movies don't have to change Hollywood when yeah. they can just Where it's be just like the standard good movies. Yeah. Like this yeah. can be the standard. And kind of going back to what Mark was saying is like, you hear it a lot on how art should reflect life. And I feel like, you know, having Black Panther and this cast and just its setting and everything that it's standing for is a great reflection of that. It is art reflecting life. It's not like black people don't exist, but yeah. now we actually get to see them and we get to see their struggles. And this is something that makes the Marvel Cinematic Universe seem more realistic, seem more whole. I mean, yeah, you're finally getting the grander scope. My wife and I went to see Black Panther. I don't think we saw it on, we didn't see it opening night. We saw it the very next night. We saw it on a Saturday night. Far be it from me to make assumptions, but I like to think that my instincts are good enough. I remember before the house lights went down, looking around, it was a packed theater. There are a lot of people in the audience who I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't know if these people would necessarily have come to a Marvel movie in the theater on opening weekend. I could just sort of tell they were here because this was special to them, because there was something very, very important to them about this movie. I thought that was really neat. I thought that was really, really cool. That, that, that's how powerful this film was to so many people. Oh, it, it, it was, it was. I know for a fact that I had several family members who don't care, <laughs> do not care about Marvel movies, none of it, none of it. But they were so stoked to go to the theaters to see this. Mm -hmm. So many uncles and aunties that were just like, we're in here. We're going to go watch a movie about Black Panther. They were stoked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Again, it's a great it's a great intro film. 
uh, especially for people who just don't know. <laughs> they don't know. They don't really care about comics. They don't care about these characters. But I do feel like it makes for just a good standalone film. The movie opens up with a voiceover of a younger T'Chaka retelling a very young T'Challa about Wakanda. Millions of years ago, a meteor made of vibranium, the strongest substance in the universe, struck the continent of Africa and affected the plant life in the area in which it hit. Five human tribes eventually settled in the region and called it Wakanda. The tribes warred with each other until one war was granted a vision by the panther god Bast that led him to the heart-shaped herb, which granted him superhuman strength, speed, and instincts. He became the king and the first black panther, protector of Wakanda. Four of the five tribes agreed to live under the king's rule, but the Jabari tribe left for the mountains to live in isolation. The Wakandans used vibranium to make the most advanced technology on Earth, but as the rest of the world went to hell around them, the Wakandans decided to hide their advanced technology from the rest of the world in an attempt to protect it and the vibranium that produced it. I think the opening narration with the sand table is pretty cool. I think it gives a, a nice little succinct overview of the origins of Wakanda. I'm gonna be honest, I'm gonna be honest. This is not my favorite, like, plot device. It's not just for Black Panther. Like, I've seen this in a lot of other movies where they have, like, these claymation or, you know, stop-motion puppets. Probably, like, the one that pops to my mind is the one at the end of uh, It Chapter 2, where it's, like, they're going through the ritual of Chud and they have, you know, these claymation, stop-motion, creepy puppets that are telling the story. And I'm like, this is a lot of, like, flashing lights where we could have just had, like, a cool cutaway scene or you could have told this in a different way with actors and all this other things. This is one of those hindsights where I'm like, oh, as a, as a moviegoer, I would have loved to have seen this setup where you're going through all the different Black Panthers. That way we could have seen, you know, some of the female Black Panthers that we see on the spiritual plane. We could have seen like this callback to Black Panther fighting the Ku Klux Klan. We could have, you know, had all of these fun iterations you know, kind of showing the long line, but instead we get these little, these little animated puppets, and I'm like, okay, but, like, we're already in here for such a long time, like, tag on an extra 15 minutes. I'd be more than happy to sit through a well-acted rundown of Black Panther. I don't really have an opinion either way about the puppet sand table, but I do have an opinion about the politics. And I'm fairly <laughs> certain no one wants to hear me talk about politics for this entire movie, but I've done it before for Iron Man and other movies, so I'm gonna do it here. To be perfectly honest, I think Wakanda actually had the right idea at the time that they did it to be you know, isolationist, especially if you consider how many natural resources the continent of Africa itself has and how that's basically been the downfall of the vast majority of countries on the continent. You know, look up the term the resource curse if you're interested and if you're a nerd like me. But I don't think Wakanda would have turned out as strong and well off as they did had they been open to the world. And having said that, I will later admit that I agree with some of the stuff that Killmonger says. There's a part of me that can't blame the Wakandans for thinking, okay, yeah, we don't want anything to do with this. Let's not get involved. Let's protect what we've got. Because, you know, the world is a pretty scary place. That's something, you know, you touched on it, Emily. There's not a lot that I disagree with Killmonger. <laughs> um, he makes some very valid points. My thing is, I don't like how he wants to go about doing these things. Right, yeah, we all agree where th that the problem is a problem. It's just a solution. Yeah, I don't think, you know, murder and genocide <laughs> is a great solution to this problem, but yes, it is a problem. I'm sure there are more diplomatic ways to go about it, Killmonger. <laughs> Flash forward to Oakland, California in 1992. A glowing object approaches the rooftop of an apartment building. Inside the apartment, 
two men are stashing weapons and apparently preparing to pull off some sort of job. They are visited by two bald women carrying spears who ask one of the men in another language to identify himself. He responds that he is Prince Njobu and flashes them a glowing identifying symbol inside his lower lip. Moments later, they are joined by King T'Chaka of Wakanda, Njobu's older brother. T'Chaka informs his brother that Ulysses Claw has stolen a quarter ton of vibranium and set off a bomb at the border in order to make his escape, killing many people. Claw had inside knowledge of Wakanda, where the vibranium was stored and how to get it. T'Chaka accuses Njobu of helping Claw. When Njobu denies it, his friend James reveals himself to be Zuri, another Wakandan spy sent to America unbeknownst to Njobu. Zuri produces a canister of vibranium taken by Njobu. T'Chaka tells him he will return home and inform the ruling council of his crimes. Outside, a group of boys playing basketball sees the faint image of a craft leaving the apartment rooftop. Obviously, Wakanda isn't small, and their pool of war dogs also wouldn't be small, but it does surprise me that Njobu wouldn't know that Zuri slash James was Wakandan, especially given that Njobu is part of the royal family. I feel like A, a member of the royal family wouldn't be sent out on a long-term mission like this, and B, he would have had to have seen Zuri at some point during training or in the capital. This double-cross situation is one of the things that always bothered me plot-wise. It does seem a little odd, but you know, then again, I guess when you think of like spy movies and so forth, people people double cross and triple cross each other all the time, and double agents and things like that. Maybe it's just a conceit, a conceit to storytelling that Kugler decided to do that. But it does seem a little odd that he wouldn't know or had never seen this guy before. There was a line later on by Mbaku where it's like, after all these years, we finally have a king to come through, and I'm like, oh, so. That's something that they don't really explore too much is how the like royal lineage actually interacts with the rest mm -hmm. of like their society. Is this like, you know, some English hierarchy where you don't interact with the army, the militia, handmaids, anything like that? Or is this like a very open society? Like what is this power structure within the Wakandan royalty? Maybe that's like one of the reasons why he may not have ever seen him. Also, I was like, maybe there's just like an age difference. I don't know. Maybe he's like super, super deep state. <laughs> the way Killmonger talks about the Wakandans later on, he certainly does imply that it's a very upstairs, downstairs kind of setup. Uh, you know, here you are sitting up here comfortably. Granted, when he's referring to the not royalty people, he's mainly talking about other people around the world. But, you know, it makes you wonder, could he be talking about the average Wakandan too? Or does he kind of lump all of Wakanda in together? I don't know. I feel like the possibility is there that he would have never seen him, but also it doesn't feel like Wakanda's big enough where it's like, you've never seen this guy, <laughs> ever. <laughs> and I, I feel like that's something that, again, goes to like all the shots taken for scenery. It's like, it just seems small. How big is Wakanda? <laughs> Sometimes it makes me feel like what we see of Wakanda that's hidden is just like a major city. Because mm -hmm. you, you can't tell me that the people living at the base of that mountain aren't like, wait a minute, yeah. where did that plane go? Yeah. Like there has to be something else. It has to be bigger than, than what they're claiming. Flash forward some more to one week after the events of Captain America's Civil War and the murder of T'Chaka, T'Challa's father, at the hands of Helmut Zemo. T'Challa and General Okoye, head of the Dora Milaje, the king's personal guard, are in a Wakandan craft flying over Nigeria. They are on a mission to rescue someone named Nakia, 
from a truck in the middle of a convoy of armed soldiers. T'Challa, in his Black Panther suit, drops out of the craft and disables the engines of all the convoy vehicles with special Kimoyo beads before landing himself and beating up most of the soldiers. He gets help from Nakia, a Wakandan agent who was hiding out on the truck with several kidnapped women, and apparently she's a former flame of T'Challa's. Okoye comes down to dispatch the last of the soldiers herself. Nakia is upset that T'Challa has interrupted her on a mission. T'Challa informs Nakia that his father is dead and that he's to be coronated himself the next day and that he wants her to be there in attendance. I think it's kind of a neat little reminder of what Black Panther can do in a fight in this scene. And of course, we get a taste of what Wakanda's revered warrior women can do as well. Speaking of warrior women, uh, I have to say Okoye is by far my absolute favorite character in this movie. Seriously, I want to be her when I grow up for real. (laughs) But uh, additionally, speaking about warrior women, so I I have to shout out the door, Melage, because whenever I see them, I automatically think of the all-female regiment for the, I think it's the Republic of Benin, called the Dahomey Amazons. So it's literally just this entire military of all-female warriors just ready to throw down at all times. And they've been there for like generations. So to actually see a representation of that, I mean, it's so cool. (laughs) And again, I think they did a really good job. And you see like some of the, the traditional kind of dress for the Dohemi. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, Dohemi. And it's orange. They have like these really long neck and chest plates. And I'm just like, this is almost exactly it. And it's so cool that they actually took inspiration from this like whole female army. It's like awesome. I think they're dope. Okoye is amazing. For those who remember our uh, top five MCU characters episode, Koye made my top five very handily. I think another thing I like about this scene is in Civil War, we saw T'Challa as this very capable sort of stoic, firmly planted type of guy. And then in this scene, you know, Okoye tells him not to freeze when he sees Nakia. And what does he do? Freeze immediately. (laughs) Like, yeah, all right, buddy, you're weak to the throes of love, just like everyone else. Like, it's good to know that he's a real person. The craft returns to Wakanda. It is about to fly into a dense canopy when suddenly it is entering a type of cloaking force field that has protected the nation's true identity for many years. Once through, the true nature of Wakanda is revealed in all its high-tech glory. Magnificent skyscrapers, rapid mass transit systems, everything very futuristic and state-of-the-art. As a comic book fan, this is easily, easily one of my favorite scenes in the film. This is exactly how I would imagine Wakanda looking. Uh, I can see Jack Kirby smiling down approvingly from wherever he is. It's everything from the colors to the designs of the buildings. It's pretty much spot-on and magnificent as far as I'm concerned. Cherokee, you mentioned earlier the people who live on the other side of that mountain. They must mm-hmm. know something is up. It they, must, they must know that it's not just the mountains and the forest that keep Wakanda closed in. You know, I wonder. I always wonder, because again, I'm thinking about politics, that there was some sort of deal. You know, they say that Wakanda doesn't do outside trade and they don't do imports or anything. There must be some sort of trade going on with... Like, uh, like hush money? There. <laughs> yeah, there has to. to be. You can't tell me that they don't see these, like, would-be UFOs flying into the mountains and not raise any question? Bugatti spaceships flying into the mountains. <laughs> exactly. Going back to the city itself, it's almost spot on to what my brain would imagine Wakanda looking like, but I love uh, in later scenes where they actually go to like the streets of Wakanda, and it looks mm-hmm. like any other street. You know, it's so vibrant, and again, it kind of gives that small-town feel, but 
the, the guy seems... like the guy like flipping ribs on the grill, you know? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I always get so hungry when I see that. <laughs> <laughs> or like you know, you see the tag sprayed on the wall, and I'm like, this mm-hmm. is like a city. Like this is a lived-in city. It's not exactly perfect, you know, in every aspect or regard. It just brings to life the picture that I would have in my head. Meanwhile, in London. Ulysses Claw, now outfitted with some kind of high-tech prosthetic left arm to replace the one that was severed by Ultron, steals a Wakandan artifact made of vibranium from a museum with the help of one Eric Stevens. This is a short scene, but it's important for setting up a couple of things. One, that Claw is still very active and dangerous, and two, a taste of Killmonger's motives for doing what he does as demonstrated by his comments to the museum curator about her ancestors having simply taken the artifacts from their respective peoples in Africa. I also love this scene, and I don't have any deeper, meaningful reason behind it, really, but it's just so cool. I love how Eric uses the museum lady's preconceived ideas of who he presents himself to be to turn it against her. I love that it seems as if his girlfriend was dedicated enough to the con job to work at the coffee stand and be like, all right, I'm going to go take a break. You know, I just love a good museum theft. I love con jobs. Also, Eric's music. I'm really into it. I love his theme music. Just imagine going into work one day just to get poisoned. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> I would have hated to be that museum lady. I would have hated to be that guy who got to run away. Oh, oh yeah. When Claw was I don't like, know. come here, come here, come here. It's okay. And then, pew. Gets shot in the like, back of the head, yeah. Like, then at least you have like a, a glimpse of hope. Like, maybe I'm actually going to get away. And you're kind of happy for like a brief second. Then, <laughs> just done. I don't know. It's really messed up. <laughs> it's, it's Claw and Killmonger. Yeah, well, that's why the scene works. You, you want to establish how dangerous your antagonists are. That's a pretty intense scene, not just for the sheer violence of it, but Killmonger's reasons for doing what he's doing are laid out in pretty stark terms, which kind of tells you this is what's going on. I think it's funny that like all the scenes where Killmonger has to be excessively bad, they make sure it's excessively bad or else we might be too empathetic for him. I mean, because I I agree with him where he's like, none of these artifacts belong to you. You took them from their cultures. You don't even know where this artifact is from. Like you say it was found in Benin, but it's from Wakanda. And he's right. He's correct in all of those points. Then the reaction of, all right, I'm going to poison you, and this dude's going to kill all your bodyguards, and we're going to run away. Like Exactly. It is like... That's where you lose me. The embodiment of like... Do the ends justify the means? Some would argue that this is a weak spot in the movie because it's like you've got this great, complex, sympathetic villain. We'll call him a villain in, in Eric Killmonger. But because it's a Marvel movie, you can't make him too sympathetic. So we got to make him do something really evil. So we got to exactly. dirty him up. So we, we got we to gotta turn him into a, you know this stone-cold murderer because you know we don't want you liking him too much and we don't want you sympathizing with him too much because the movie still needs a bad guy. There are a lot of people out there who say that that's in some ways you know a weakness of the film. But I think that's a lot true. of people would still be on his side. I think even with the murder and even with the violence and even with the guns and weapons, I think a lot of people would probably say, yeah, all right. Yeah, that's <laughs> well, true. I mean, people are like that. <laughs> there are so many people who are like, yeah, no, he's still right. And I'm like, oh, hold up. Wait a minute. But I can I can see I can see why people would think that it, it brings the movie down a little bit. I feel like the reason for that is because it kind of takes away the responsibility of the audience to be able to decipher like what is good, what is wrong, where is this gray area. It takes agency away from the people actually watching the movie to actually, you know, think for themselves. Like, do I agree with this? Or is it, he still it, wrong? It's it's tantamount to telling the audience what you want them to think. 
Exactly. So I, I get that argument. I definitely understand where they're coming from with that. We cut to the coronation ceremony. It is obviously a very big deal with representatives of the four tribes, plus several dignitaries and VIPs in attendance, T'Challa's mother, Queen Ramonda, his sister Shuri, Nakia, and the Dora Milaje. The ceremony is conducted by Zuri, the same one who ratted out T'Chaka's brother back in 1992. T'Challa is given an elixir that strips him of the Black Panther's powers. When none of the four tribes, nor anyone of royal blood, challenge for the throne, it appears T'Challa will become king without a fight. But at the last minute, representatives of the Jabari tribe, led by M'Baku, come down from the mountains to challenge T'Challa's claim to the throne. By tradition, T'Challa and M'Baku must engage in one-on-one -on -one combat until either one of them yields or one of them dies. Can I do my best M'Baku voice as a five foot four, 110 pound white girl? <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. It's challenge day. <laughs> Like, again, the casting for this movie is great. This is actually the first time I'd ever seen Winston Duke in a movie. So it's like, mm -hmm. oh, oh, I see why they did this. Yeah. <laughs> like, he has such a presence. Admittedly, I have not read a ton of Black Panther comics, but enough to the, to know M'Baku. And I'm like, okay, that is definitely M'Baku. You need kind of this right. big, very imposing, bombastic presence. And he serves in that capacity very well. I feel like... He is such a good representative for the Jabari tribe. As soon as they came through that little, you know, the mountain, I was like, oh, uh -huh. I like them. Yeah. <laughs> they just came in there, squatted up with all the war paint, <laughs> ready to go, and I love that. <laughs> it is quite a fight there on the edge of a waterfall. For much of the fight, it appears M'Baku will prevail as he continually rains blows of brute force on T'Challa, but T'Challa ultimately gains the upper hand and forces M'Baku to yield thus ending the fight and resulting in T'Challa becoming king officially. I think the film's greatest strength is the way in which Wakanda is depicted, and that's on full display here in the entire coronation scene. I mean, visually, it's stunning, with the spectators taking up the different levels of the waterfall area and that myriad amazing colors displayed by the different tribes. I love how each tribe has its own unique style of dress and speech and its own distinct primary color. Uh, yeah, this is definitely one of those scenes that brought a tear to my eye. Like with the music, the actual like shots of the scenery, like when they're going down the river, I was like, that's cool. When they actually shut off the water to the water, yeah. I'm like, that's even cooler. But then when you get to the actual challenge site, it reminds me of um, the Star Wars scene where they have like all the different aliens in the Senate, kind of like in their own little, <laughs> their own little like basket. Little pods, um, yeah. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of that. I mentioned it earlier about how this movie does a really good job of kind of taking different designs and different like traditional dress and wear and like all these other aspects of different countries in Africa. I think they did a really good job of making them concise and inspiring a lot of the wardrobe. They won an Oscar for that wardrobe exactly. too. Exactly, and like I was, I was gonna say, like there's a whole like there's like short documentary. They have all kinds of articles. Like they've brought in so many people just to make sure that the wardrobe was on point, and it was. You can immediately look like, oh, they're from the water tribe or the river tribe. They're from the the merchant tribe, and just the details down to like the hair, the makeup, so on point. That whole scene is so beautifully choreographed. The music, the songs, they're all great. Props to. Um, I'm forgetting her name right now, but the lady who was in charge of the wardrobe, like, props to her. <laughs> she earned her money. 
The world building in this film is extraordinary. They do such a good job. You know what this place looks like and you know what everything represents. Everything has its own place. They went to great pains to establish how Wakanda works and how it's arranged and how it looks and feels and extraordinary detail. I mean, the continent of Africa itself, there are so many cultures, so many traditions, and they were able to curate <laughs> so much of that into just the smallest details. And mm -hmm. I mean, they did a great job. In the aftermath of the fight, T'Challa visits the garden where the heart-shaped herb, which endows one with the powers of the Black Panther, is grown. He is given the herb to restore his powers and his mind is subsequently taken to the ancestral plane where he is briefly united with the spirit of his father, T'Chaka. He tells his father that he's not yet ready to be without him and asks what he should do to best protect Wakanda. T'Chaka tells him that it's hard for a good man to be a king and that he should surround himself with people he trusts. I call this the Lion King scene <laughs> for reasons that should be fairly obvious to those who've seen that movie. And, you know, while it is a genuinely beautiful scene, both from a visual standpoint, I mean, you just look at that sky, and from an emotional standpoint, I get it. I lost my dad last year, and, you know, I would give just about anything to see him again, so I understand the power of that scene. But every time I see it, I just keep hearing James Earl Jones instead of John <laughs> Connie, and I start singing the circle of life in my head, and somehow disrupts the majesty of the moment for me. And I know that's not anyone's fault, but that's just just kind of how it is. For some reason, every time I see that scene, I start thinking another Disney property. <laughs> T'Challa, remember who you are. <laughs> That's exactly what it reminds me of every time. <laughs> I mean, they've even got, they're not lions, but they've got panthers in those trees, you know? Yeah. Well, they even have like the same general color scheme. <laughs> Dark night sky. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of clouds everywhere. I mean, it's been a few years since I've seen The Lion King, but yeah. Later... T'Challa takes a walk with Nakia through a marketplace. He asks her to stay, but she says she wants to go back out into the field because she feels it's where she belongs. She also says she would feel bad staying in Wakanda knowing that there are people out there who have nothing. She insists that Wakanda can find a way to both share what it has with the rest of the world and protect itself. He then visits with Wakabi, head of security for the border tribe, romantic partner to Okoye, and T'Challa's best friend. He tells him what Nakia told him in the market about providing aid and letting in refugees. Wakabi cautions him that letting in refugees means letting in their problems. Quote, and then Wakanda is like everywhere else. It's interesting that Wakabi and others are worried about Wakanda becoming like everywhere else when they send out their own war dogs to do their bidding and get involved in others' affairs. You know, I mean, as an American, we talk about the CIA getting involved in pretty much every other country's business. And obviously there are times when they're doing good things like Nikia with her mission to save those girls who were kidnapped by the soldiers in Nigeria at the beginning. But I'm fairly certain it wasn't just the vibranium that Njobu was selling when he was based in Oakland. If Njobu, part of the royal family, can go off and be allowed to do this kind of behavior. Any other war dog could do it too. And are you really making the world a better place? It's the same with America when we go out and, you know, politics, but when we go out and start wars and get involved and then we don't take in their refugees because they're gonna bring in our problems, it's like, well, we caused their problems. And I wouldn't say Wakanda's like, you know, the American empire, but I feel like the idea is a little similar at least. It's kind of funny how close to home this is, it's hitting, especially where we're at now politically. <laughs> I could definitely see Wakabi being like, yeah, we gotta build that wall. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, yeah, the way I read it is, in some ways, he's making at least one of Killmonger's points. There's sort of this sitting in a gilded cage kind of 
mentality among the Wakandans. There's us and then there's the rest of the world and we're kind of above this. We're trying to stay above the fray. Okoye informs T'Challa and the council about Claw's theft of the vibranium from London and that she's discovered that he plans to sell it to an American buyer in South Korea the very next evening. T'Challa authorizes a mission to go there and capture him. Before leaving for South Korea, T'Challa visits Shuri in her design lab where she has some new tech to take on the mission, including remote access Kimoyo beads, communicators with unlimited range, and a new Black Panther suit that uses nanites to capture kinetic energy when the suit is struck and redistributed. It's not hard to see why Shuri is such a fan favorite. She's probably the smartest person in the MCU so far. She serves as a really good counterpoint to T'Challa's slightly more taciturn nature. It's my dream that one day we'll get to see a scene with Peter Parker and Shuri together, and they can just play with all of their tech gadgets and Gen Z it up and annoy everyone else in the MCU. And I say this as a millennial that they would probably annoy. And I'm a Gen Xer, so I have to put up with the silliness of Gen Z and the millennials. So it's funny that you mentioned a scene with Peter and Shuri together, because I think Letitia Wright and uh, Tom Holland are friends, if I'm not mistaken, because they're they're both fellow Brits, I think. And I think they've alluded to, in like interviews and stuff that they, that they know each other. So T'Challa, Nakia, and Okoye go to Busan, South Korea to pursue Claw. Nakia uses her contacts to get them into the underground poker game where the buy is supposed to take place. They're scoping the place when T'Challa spots Agent Everett Ross of the CIA, last seen interrogating Helmut Zemo in the end of Civil War. T'Challa confronts him. Both men are determined to collar Claw themselves. Claw arrives and approaches Ross, who questions him about the inordinate number of goons he has in tow. Claw tells Ross that they aren't there for him. Just as the deal is about to go down, Okoye is made by one of Claw's goons, and all hell breaks loose. There's a massive firefight slash melee in the casino, and Claw escapes in the middle of it. Nakia and Okoye get out of the building first. They hop into their vibranium Lexus and start chasing Claw. T'Challa then emerges, armors up, and starts running after Claw. He is assisted when Shuri remote steals another car and starts driving it from Wakanda as T'Challa hops on top of it to pursue Claw. Shuri, the literal man in the chair. <laughs> That's the job I want. I don't want to build the tech or anything, but I want to be tech adjacent so I can drive the car or hack the computer but not get hurt if the car actually crashes. After a lengthy two-pronged chase through the streets of Busan, T'Challa catches up to Claw and disables him. He's on the verge of killing him, with half of Busan watching and filming with smartphones, when Okoye, Nakia, and Ross convince him to spare his life and take him prisoner instead. I love the scene in the casino. It, uh, it reminds me of a James Bond movie. I, I like the way the fight is choreographed. It's very kinetic without being chaotic. I love how Kugler cuts it so that we get a different character's perspective of the fight. You know, we kind of co go from T'Challa to Okoye to Nakia to Ross to Claw. In particular, I love watching Okoye fight up on the balcony. And I referenced this in our Top 5 MCU Characters episode a few months back. As far as the chase goes, as someone who loves cars and car chases, I like the overall chase through Busan, but I thought the sequence was tarnished a bit by what I thought were some kind of subpar Black Panther effects. I thought all the stuff with him hopping about the cars and flipping over them looked really fake, frankly. It just kind of screamed CGI, and, you know, the really the best CGI is the CGI that doesn't necessarily look it. And uh, I don't know, that just really looked it to me. I think the part that looked most CGI is where he's, like, hopping from the car to the building sign to the building. Yes. I was like, oof. Oh, that's looking a little animated right he, there, bud. He, look, he looks kind of rubbery. He looks like a he looks like yeah. a dude in like a rubber suit. And I'm like, what is this? Is this it's Black Panther. It's not it's not Gumby. 
But uh, no, I definitely, I love this scene. Specifically the scene that cemented uh, my love for Okoye <laughs> is the start of that brawl. Like, oh my God, that wig snatch before. <laughs> just, oh, iconic, amazing. Loved everything about it. And then when the soundtrack starts up, oh my gosh i get chills literally every single time when she's about to start the fight and it's just it's so good i love it so much and martin freeman <laughs> i love martin freeman so much ever since i saw him in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy i was like this guy is going places and to see him playing agent ross is just perfect casting i love it <laughs> But also, you know, this scene does such a great job. It's a great promotion for the Toyota 4Runner. As soon as I saw this, I was like, oh, I need that car. That car right there is amazing. It wouldn't be a Marvel movie without a line of SUVs going down the street or the oh. desert or whatnot. <laughs> All black SUVs. All black SUVs. On top of the car chase, I love that they had Nakia take her shoes off to drive. Like, there was clearly <laughs> someone on that set who said, no girl would ever drive in heels, take those shoes off immediately. Super relatable. The next morning, Ross interrogates Claw, with T'Challa and Okoye covertly listening in. When Ross asks him where he got his prosthetic arm cannon, Claw tells him that he should ask the Wakandans, because their alleged developing country existence is just a front for a highly advanced, technologically superior society society powered by a mound of vibranium upon which it sits. Hold on, hold on. Can we just talk for a second about how completely unhinged Claw is? I mean, I know Andy Serkis is a weird dude, but I didn't realize that he could get that weird. I mean, I guess I do now, given that he did Venom Let There Be Carnage, but the first time I watched this movie, I was in awe of just how just <laughs> completely unhinged, like I said, that he acted in this scene. I can't hear what is love anymore without <laughs> for at least a moment thinking of him. I cannot tell you how many times whenever I see something cool or do something cool, I now just instinctively yell out, That was awesome! <laughs> that and like when he shoots the money cart, it's like, Oh, I'm making it rain! I made it rain! I was like, dude. <laughs> it's so, it's so unhinged. I love Andy Serkis. He's good. And I, and I tell you, if nothing else, I'm probably going to have to see Venom Let There Be Carnage just because he directed it. And it's like, okay, well, a guy I really like directed this movie. I kind of feel obligated to see it. So if nothing else, that might draw me in to see it. While Ross steps out to confront T'Challa about these allegations, Nakia notices the same van circling their location suspiciously. Sure enough, it's Stevens there to break Claw out. He blows a hole in the side of the building and shoots a bunch of people before fleeing with Claw. During the firefight, Ross Ross is shot in the back while trying to protect Nakia and suffers a severe spinal cord injury. T'Challa chases after him but is knocked out by a grenade. As Stevens flees, T'Challa notices him wearing a ring on a chain around his neck similar to his father's. Against Okoye's urging, T'Challa brings Ross back to Wakanda in the hopes that Shuri can save his life and keep him from paralysis. She can do both, of course. Wakabi arrives and is most unhappy when T'Challa tells him that Claw got away, equating T'Challa's failure with T'Chaka's 30 years of quote-unquote doing nothing about Claw. Meanwhile, Claw, Stevens, Stevens' girlfriend, and the other guy <laughs> arrive at the airfield to make their getaway from England, but Stevens kills all three of them. Wakabi is such a dick. <laughs> First, there's that comment about letting refugees in, and now he's throwing shade onto T'Challa and his dad. I mean, it's not like T'Challa didn't try. I mean, stuff happens, you know. I I'm guessing Wakabi is supposed to represent a sort of, like, smug superiority that a lot of Wakandans probably feel, which is, you know, kind of something that Killmonger alludes to later on. Okoye has exhibited some of those sentiments, too. Obviously, she ends up going down a different path from Wakabi eventually, but right now, she is in kind of the same camp. She clearly was not in favor of bringing 
Ross back to Wakanda, even if it would save his life. She wanted to pursue Claw and didn't feel like having to deal with Ross, a foreign intelligence operative, discovering Wakanda's little secret. <laughs> this whole scene is so messed up. Again, it kind of like going back to what I was saying earlier, all of these scenes that they have Killmonger doing these bad things, like they make it atrociously bad. Mm -hmm. When he shot his quote unquote girlfriend, I was like, oh my God. Like I was clutching my pearls, like how could he? But it's like, oh wait, yeah, he's the quote unquote bad guy of the film. Of course mm -hmm. he would. I mean, we're at this point where it's like, I kind of get where he's coming from. But murder does not justify that. And again, Wakabi is just such a dick in this scene. Like, dude, he 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 did the thing. He went out and tried. Things get in the way. <laughs> it's not like he's never gonna try it again. Like, he clearly, before he even went out on this mission, looked you in the eyes and said, I am gonna do this, I promise you. It's like, okay, maybe he didn't do it this time, but I'm sure he would wanna go back out. Like, mm -hmm. calm down, dude. <laughs> Having seen the ring on Steven's neck back in Busan, T'Challa confronts Zuri about his uncle Njobu. Zuri explains that Njobu was placed in America as a war dog and that T'Chaka sent Zuri along covertly to observe. Njobu fell in love with an American woman and they had a child. He became radicalized and helped Claw steal the vibranium with the intent of using it to provide Wakandan-style weapons to African peoples around the globe so that they could overthrow their oppressors. That night in the apartment in Oakland, Njobu drew a weapon on Zuri, so T'Chaka killed him, leaving Njobu's child, Eric Killmonger Stevens, behind. T'Chaka swore Zuri to silence about the whole affair. There are two really big revelations in this scene. The most obvious one, of course, is the fact of what happened to Njobu and how that most likely, you know, set Killmonger down the path that he ultimately trod. But the part I find most interesting about this scene is that it puts T'Challa in the terrible position of realizing only a week after his death that the father he loved and idolized was ultimately a human being also and capable of making some terrible mistakes. You know, I think about us, like, you know, when we're little, when we're kids, you know, if we're fortunate enough, we see our parents as these larger-than-life figures, and it can be kind of a world-crushing thing when we realize just how fallible they really are. And in T'Challa's case, it's like that's been magnified since his dad was, you know, a freaking king. He went to the ends of the earth and, you know, almost killed an innocent man trying to seek justice for his father's death. And then, you know, in the ancestral plane, he asked for his guidance on how to lead an entire country. And then to find out about this terrible lie perpetrated by his father and by Zuri too. I mean, that's just that just has to be devastating. I'll obviously talk about this more when we really get into what Killmonger's planning, but in the flashback, Njobu's line about with the right weapons, they could overthrow every country and we could rule them all the right way. I mean, I know I'm kind of an idealistic American at times, so I have this bent towards democracy and all, but rule them all the right way? I don't think that's possible, personally. <laughs> I was talking about this last night to someone about obviously Wakanda's presented in this sort of utopian perfect way, but there's no way. You know, every country has a sort of dark side. Every country has something they'd rather hide. And while this is a more personalized story, the fact that the king was willing to cover this up and forced other people to cover up what happened and that they left one of their own out in the world to fend for himself. You know, they created this problem themselves. So it obviously isn't as perfect as we're sort of led to believe. 
honestly i'm more surprised that it hadn't happened earlier because like you said like there's war dogs literally in every country you're telling me that none of them fell in love with somebody who wasn't in country none of them had kids like how do you sustain this are you just going out and killing every war dog in their family like i feel like we have these rose tinted glasses when we talk about wakanda but again it's just any other country and it's i'm sure they have just as much like seedy politics and underhanded dealings as the rest of us so i feel like this does a really good job of like encapsulating that idea one of the, the things that marvel always prided itself on is you know the world outside your window and making their heroes feel accessible. Peter Parker, he's fighting all these supervillains, but he's also got to get his science project done. He's got to study for his history test, dealing with day-to-day -day problems. And you think of, you know, the Fantastic Four, them dealing with these you know, supernatural, super science-y sorts of things. But at the same time, it's like Reed Richards so tied up in his work, he's ignoring his wife and letting his marriage kind of go down the toilet. And it's the same sort of thing here. The Wakandans are still human beings. You know, T'Chaka is a human being. And humans make mistakes. I remember someone once telling me it's always possible for evil people to do incredibly generous and good things and similarly it's also you know equally possible for essentially very very good people to do terrible things. Killmonger flies to Wakanda and delivers Claw's body at the feet of Wakabi. Meanwhile, Ross wakes up in Shuri's lab and realizes that everything Claw told him about Wakanda's tech was true. Okoye learns about Killmonger's arrival with Claw's body, and soon everyone is called to Shuri's lab where Ross briefs them on who Eric Stevens really is, a graduate of the Naval Academy and MIT who becomes a SEAL and went to Afghanistan where he racked up the kills that led to his nickname before becoming a JSOC ghost operative capable of assassinations and bringing down governments. Killmonger is brought before T'Challa and the Council, where he identifies himself using his war dog tattoo as N'Jadaka, son of N'Jobu. He is there to challenge T'Challa's claim to the throne and to the mantle of Black Panther so that he can do what his father set out to do, arm the African peoples of the world so they can overthrow their oppressors. T'Challa accepts the challenge. Hey, auntie. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite parts. Someone on my Twitter a long time ago was sort of mockingly talking about how Michael B. Jordan is yelling this entire movie. <laughs> and sort of like metaphorically yelling. Like he's just doing so much in this movie. And I actually kind of like that. He's at 110% when most everybody else, I wouldn't say everybody else is at like 90%, 95%. And he's like really coming hard, like really, really leaning into it. I always think that like that line in particular is like, oh yeah, you're not playing around. Like you are Killmonger. Okay. I think that's one of the things that makes him work for me, frankly. I mean, you do want some nuance in your characters, especially your antagonist or your villain, whatever you want to call them. But I mean, you need to know how angry he is <laughs> and you need to know why he's doing what he's doing. And so, yeah, the fact that he's yelling throughout the film, uh, that's, that's noteworthy. It always made me wonder... Like, how much of that is directed or how much of that is, like, intentional acting? Is he is he putting his all because he really reflects, like, really feels this way towards a character? Or is somebody saying, hey, we need you to bring this up some? I imagine Kugler has an incredible amount of faith and trust in Michael B. Jordan. They've worked together enough now. I wouldn't be surprised if he just, he just said, hey, roll with this the way that you think works best. I'm guessing it gave him a, a great deal of latitude. You know, the, the end result, I mean, he's a showstopper. You know, however he decided to deliver his lines or <laughs> yell his lines, uh, I mean, it did, it did the job. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it caught people's attentions and it had people talking about him for a long time. Yeah. 
Killmonger is a very compelling MCU villain slash antagonist because he's a somewhat sympathetic character. The King of Wakanda killed his father when he was a child and left him on his own. So, you know, it's, it's no wonder that he's pissed. And knowing that Wakandans are quietly sitting on a mountain of vibranium and unbelievable technology, while black people around the world still suffer subjugation of one form or another, regardless of whether or not I agree with that course of action, it makes complete and total sense that he would want to do these things. I get that. It also makes a lot of sense when you consider that he grew up in Oakland in the 90s. You know, granted, not everybody knows about, like, particular American politics in any city, but if you think of what was going on in California at that time, what's well, the they have, Like Rodney the, King the, riots the, and things like that. The L.A. riots. They, have, they yeah. have that on the TV in the apartment. If the you LA grow riots. up in violence and then you become a guy whose nickname is Killmonger, you're not going to see much of a way out of all the problems in the world that don't at least involve a small touch of violence. You know, like Cherokee saying, for him, the do justify the means. So we go back to the waterfall. This time it's just T'Challa, Killmonger, and some VIPs like the Council, the Dormalaje, and T'Challa's family. Once again, T'Challa takes the counteragent to remove the powers of the Black Panther, and he and Killmonger fight. It is an absolutely brutal fight, with Killmonger charging T'Challa relentlessly. He gets in some nasty sword cuts before impaling T'Challa with a spear. He's about to land a killing blow when Zuri intervenes and offers himself up to Killmonger, saying he was the cause of his father's death. Killmonger wastes no time killing him before finishing off the hopelessly outmatched T'Challa by throwing him over the falls. As the horrified crowd looks on at Killmonger's coronation, Nakia hurries Queen Ramonda and Shuri away from the scene, lest he come after them. God, the absolute fury with which Killmonger goes after T'Challa. I mean, that's just pure rage fueling him right there. Also, notice how the first coronation fight was like first thing in the morning with all this radiant sunshine and so forth. This fight is at dusk with darkness descending upon Wakanda. A very apt metaphor indeed. Another similarity with this challenge day and the first one is M'Baku's quip about, you know, no powers, no claw, no special suit, just a boy not fit to lead. And Killmonger's is, is this your king, the Black Panther, who's supposed to lead you into the future? Him? He's supposed to protect you? Like, I liked the comparison of their two feelings about it. Okoye meets secretly with Nakia to make sure that the Queen Mother and Shuri are safe. Nakia implores Okoye to come with them, but she refuses, saying that despite what she thinks, she is loyal to the throne regardless of who occupies it. She tells her she is not a spy who can simply come and go as she pleases, a comment which appears to wound Nakia more than I think Okoye intended. Nakia retrieves Ross from his confinement and brings him with her to join Queen Ramonda and Shuri. Killmonger is given the heart-shaped herb, thus giving him the powers of the Black Panther and transporting him to the ancestral plane. In a flashback, we see young Eric Stevens run into the apartment moments after his father's death. We then see Killmonger in that same apartment, but in the context of the ancestral plane. He speaks to his father, appearing first as young Stevens, then as Killmonger. And Jobu tells him about the beautiful sunsets in Wakanda and that he should have taken him back sooner. He says he left him a key to return one day, the ring and the war dog tattoo, but warns him that he may not be welcome. When Killmonger awakens, he orders all of the remaining harp-shaped herb to be burned. Nakia sneaks in and steals a sample before the rest are incinerated. When Njobu asks young Eric Stevens, no tears for me, he responds, everybody dies. It's just life around here. 
And I think that uh, that feeds back into what, what Emily was saying earlier about if you just kind of grow up in an environment of violence, sometimes certain things just end up becoming second nature to you like that. I think also what's painful here is Njobu telling young Eric that he might not be welcomed by his own people, whether it's because they may find out what Njobu did or just because Wakanda is so isolationist. It still hurts to know that you aren't like everyone around you, but you also won't be accepted by the people who are supposed to be your family. That right there uh, is like one of the most prominent messages that stood out to me in this movie. Um, I don't know if it just resonated more with me, but it, it's one of those things that you, you don't or you probably won't understand with having a certain amount of privilege here in the U.S. or anywhere in the world really, but um, being African-American myself, when, when we speak about the African diaspora, I feel like we tend to accept that Yes, black people are on every continent in pretty much every country, but there's still such this profound disconnect between being African, you know, from Africa and being black. You see it sometimes, you know, poked and prodded at in different TV shows or just like offhanded comments that you might hear coming from like people that you know, people down the street. But it's it's an issue that's been touched on in all sorts of forms, race on immigration, identity, etc. But what lies at the heart of that thought is that being black in America or anywhere in the world where colonization and the slave trade influenced it, there is always going to be that feeling that you'll just never really belong. Like you recognize that you don't fit in in the setting that you are now and that's something that's followed. Like that's a generational thing. But then there's also at the back of your mind knowing that, well, you can never go back. Like you're so far removed from what, you know, the situations that brought us here to begin with. It's something that it's internalized and it warrants a lot of discussion. So the fact that they even brought it up in this movie in that regard, again, it's kind of like an offhanded sentence, but it's a poignant message. And I think that they delivered it slightly enough <laughs> that people who struggle with it, people who recognize it, they're like, okay, this this is the, one of the points being made. I feel like I heard that more because it was not like a big point in the movie, like the whole Killmongers wanting to arm the oppressed peoples of the world and, and so on and so forth. And the idea of him possibly never being accepted. It was mainly in this one scene that they kind of really talked about that. It, it felt more powerful that way in a, in a strange sort of way. I don't know if that makes any sense because it was a little more understated. Yeah, well, it, because it was so understated, it's a very intimate moment with the two of them talking on the ancestral plane, right? So you know it's going to be a very personal conversation. So I feel like as an audience member, you're already tuned into like, okay, this is something that's going to bring some kind of message across like he's imparting some sort of knowledge again it's one of those internalized issues most internalized issues you're going to talk with family so i feel like the setup for that was well done but it's not something that's really expanded upon until the very end of the movie it's subtle enough if you hit the nail on the head too many times it's gonna lose its impact so i think they did a good job the next day, Killmonger assumes the throne and orders that Wakandan weapons be sent to war dogs around the world to arm oppressed peoples of African descent so that they can overthrow their oppressors. Wakabi supports him, while Okoye tries to argue against the plan. I'm not sure where is a good place to put this, and I know there was some talk about Wakabi earlier, but I wish we knew more about him. His life and Killmonger's life were both screwed up by the same person, Njobu. And I guess, you know, you could say T'Chaka because... 
T'Chaka. It's the reason Njobu's dead. But Njobu's the one who betrayed the trust of his brother T'Chaka to allow Claw into the country to steal the vibranium and therefore set off the bomb that killed Bokabi's parents. And then Njobu was killed, essentially, for it, leaving Killmonger an orphan as well. You know, they're like two sides of the same coin and two different outcomes of the same bad situation. Additionally, the switch from the more traditional soundtrack to the sort of trap beat that Eric has, walking into T'Challa's throne room and the camera slowly flipping from upside down to right side up is just so cool. It kind of, it's like, uh, what's that one quote? It's like the sins of the father. We're seeing the the consequences of their actions coming back full force. Mm-hmm. And now everybody has to deal with it. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that shot of the throne room or him walking into the throne room, I, I, I love that. It's one of those moments where you're like, ooh, that's filmmaking at its finest right there. I think that shot, it has like a specific name for that camera movement. And I've seen it in a couple other movies, but I, I'm forgetting the actual like technical name for it. It's, it's used to increase the tension. It's used for the audience to feel this weird distortion of like, mm-hmm. oh, hold up, we're upside down, we're right side up, what's going on? And they use it at the perfect point because it it shows this like perfect visual representation of everybody's world like everyone's world the traditions the royal expectations being flipped upside down like literally literally overnight (laughs) literally overnight like when he goes into the throne room everybody their stunned faces shock just quiet it's so quiet i mean aside from the awesome music playing but even then, it's like it's so different from what we've been hearing up until this point. So it's like them literally showing us how Killmonger intends to flip the script mm-hmm. on Wakanda and its role in the world. So it, it works really well. For oh. me, I, I thought it was a good scene. And Nakia and company head towards the mountains and to the Jabari. It is her intention to give the heart-shaped herb to M'Baku, who, like it or not, may be their only shot at getting rid of Killmonger. Queen Ramonda urges her to take it herself, but she declines, saying she is just a spy with no army. Jabari soldiers intercept them and escort them to M'Baku. They explain what has happened and offer the heart-shaped herb to him. Instead of accepting it, he takes them to another building where T'Challa, found near the river's edge by a Jabari fishing boat, lies in a bed of snow in a coma. The snow is the only thing keeping him alive. Ramonda crushes the herb and pours it into T'Challa's mouth. I think M'Baku has the coolest throne room. It's kind of like it was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright and Arthur C. Clarke. My favorite part about this scene is how M'Baku is like such a troll, just totally destroying Everett Ross purely for the lulls. Love to see it. It's so funny. Hilarious. Oh my gosh. It's like he literally looks at him. He gives him the stare is like, oh no, you're not going to speak unless you're spoken to. But going back to like the look, zooming into the throne room where you just see this gorilla holding up the side of the mountain, I'm like, yeah. oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> that's so cool. It's one of the reasons why like, I really want to see more. I want to learn more about the Jabari tribe. They have their own self-contained culture. Clearly, it's not a small little village or city. So like, what what's going on here? They may have, to an extent, rejected the super-duper high-tech aspects of kind of the mainstream Wakandan culture in the capital and so forth, but clearly there is something scientific or, or whatever at play to make things that look like that. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, it still has, like, that modern, technical, like, sleek look inside the throne room, but not really. It's like, we got all that stuff. Like, we, we have access to it. They're not alone, but we're just gonna focus on the 
the aesthetics, you know? <laughs> We're gonna keep the wood and the bones and all this other stuff. A good friend of mine, he's got a t-shirt and I, I wish I could remember exactly what it says. It says something like M'Baku's Vegetarian Emporium or, or you know, Jabari Vegetarian Restaurant or something <laughs> like that. That was uh, some t-shirt that he purchased not too long after the film came out, which of course I, I think that's very funny. That's great. As soon as he's like, I'll feed you to my children. Haha, <laughs> just joking. We're vegetarians. <laughs> like, yeah, the, the, sir. De- the deadpan delivery is what gets me more than anything. He just got this oh, straight yeah. for, I'm only joking, we're vegetarians. Yeah. <laughs> T'Challa returns to the ancestral plane and is immediately approached by his father, who welcomes him to the afterlife. But T'Challa is having none of it. Angrily, he asks his father why he left Eric Stevens behind. T'Chaka responds that he was, quote, the truth I chose to omit. T'Challa tells him that he was wrong for doing it, and he further condemns all of the ancestors for turning their backs on the rest of the world. Realizing he cannot rest until Killmonger is stopped, T'Challa leaves the ancestral plane and wakes up. You can make a very strong argument that the most important scene in the film is any one of the scenes in which Killmonger talks about why he's doing what he's doing. To me, however, this is the most important scene of the film. It can be very difficult to stand up to someone, especially a friend or a family member, when you have a disagreement with them. We've seen it in Civil War. We've seen it in (laughs) Harry Potter. Uh, We know this just from living our normal lives. T'Challa admires and respects his father so much, so you can see how absolutely painful it is for him to have to confront his father about this terrible thing that he did. But he does it because he knows that it's the right thing to do. Furthermore, by telling all of his ancestors that they were wrong for turning their backs on the rest of the world, he's implicitly acknowledging that Killmonger was right about Wakanda sitting comfortably with itself while the rest of the world kind of went to hell. And he knows that he has to go back and stop the monster that all of them created. This is the moment where T'Challa decides what kind of king he wants to be. You know, one that doesn't glibly sacrifice people, i.e. Ross or young Eric Stevens, to protect the image or the isolationist paranoia, for lack of a better word, of the nation, and one that's willing to engage with the world to help make it a better place. Because he, you know, here, the first time he's in the ancestral plane, he's telling his dad, I don't know how to run this country. I don't know how to be king. And now, upon his second visit there, I mean, he knows exactly what kind of king he wants to be. He knows what he has to do. So that's why, to me, this is the most pivotal moment of the film. That is like the most gaslighty non-answer to T'Challa coming up to him and being like, why'd you do this? Why'd you do this? Why'd you do this? Oh, it's the truth I chose to admit. Mm-hmm. That gives me no answers. It's kind of deflecting like, oh, it's the truth I chose to admit. What? <laughs> like, that is not an answer, sir. Clearly you had a reasoning. Clearly you did all of this for some kind of justification, whether it be personal gain, whether you just wanted to hide your, like, Wakanda's dirty secrets or whatever, but, like, not acknowledging your past actions and not trying to do anything to help your son move forward all these years, like, I'd be pissed. (laughs) I'd still be pissed. And this is the afterlife, no less. It's like, you're dead, dude. Tell me the truth. What else am I going to do to you? Exactly. (laughs) Because, like, clearly, it's like, I'm already thinking less of you. Like, at least try Mm -hmm. to help me understand your justification. Like, you're dead. I need answers now. I I would snap out of a small ice coma, too, from (laughs) pure rage. Pure rage. 
Shuri, Nakia, and Ross insist on accompanying T'Challa back to the capital to help him confront Killmonger. Shuri just happens to have T'Challa's Black Panther suit concealed in a necklace and gives it to him. He then thanks M'Baku for saving his life and for agreeing to allow Queen Ramonda to remain under his protection in the Jabari lands, but M'Baku refuses to help T'Challa take on Killmonger. Back in the capital, the first ships bearing Wakandan weapons are ready to depart, but they are disrupted by the arrival of T'Challa. He insists that the challenge was never completed as he never yielded, quote, and clearly I am not dead. Wakabi, clearly still siding with Killmonger, attacks T'Challa with the rest of the border tribe. Okoye, citing the unfinished nature of the challenge and his unfitness for the throne, attacks Killmonger, now with the powers of the Black Panther, along with some of the Dora Milaje. She orders her lieutenant Ayo to go help T'Challa. Now I remember that Okoye was in your top five characters, and I remember you talking about the sort of the two of us talking about her loyalty and how it is to Wakanda, but she's also not as free from her emotional attachments as she might like to be. I think it's obvious that she was looking for a way out, and thankfully T'Challa survived enough to give it to her. <laughs> and to be honest, I think she had been looking for a way out from Wakabi this whole movie, and this fight to be loyal to the real Wakanda was right there in her lap waiting for her. It's kind of funny that you mentioned that, because like, I, I never noticed all the times I've seen this movie. Like, she maybe interacted with Wakabi like twice before. <laughs> right, and none of them like, were really like emotional or heartfelt. It yep. was like, my yeah. king, my, my, my love. king, my love. You know, it's, it's okay, like, okay, we have acknowledged that the two of them have a relationship and that's it. The worst, most contemptuous relationship ever. It's like, do you even love each other? Like, well, I wondered that too. <laughs> well, but I guess it, you know, sometimes you don't realize that a person is different than what you expect until there's an opportunity for it. Mm -hmm. Like, neither of them, I don't think, ever thought that there would be a point where they would have to pick a side. True. Because they always thought, oh, Wakanda's gonna stay private, Wakanda's mm -hmm. gonna be you know, this sort of isolated utopia forever. And then when they realized like, oh, this isn't possible, we can't keep living like this, yeah, they yeah. each come out on different sides and, you know, people change and you yeah. realize new things about people. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes you just go with somebody because that's the expectation. It's like, this is what seems right, this is what's working right now, but hey, you know, people change, and sometimes that change happens overnight. <laughs> like, literally. Because <laughs> she flipped the script on him so fast. So, Wakabi calls in his rhinos, and we now have a full-on battle in Wakanda. In her lab, Shuri gives Ross remote control of one of their fighter aircraft, so he can use it to stop the outgoing Wakandan ships carrying the weapons. She and Nakia then go to fight Killmonger. During the fight, Killmonger is about to finish off Shuri when T'Challa intervenes, and he and Killmonger go plummeting down the main vibranium mineshaft where they continue to fight. T'Challa orders Shuri to activate the transport trains down there, knowing that when the vibranium dampening fields around the tracks are turned on, they will render both of their panther suits inactive. Again, I'm a bit underwhelmed by this fight sequence because of the visual effects, especially the way they animate the two Black Panthers in combat. The two of them grappling with each other as they fall down the mineshaft looks really fake to me. Now, by contrast, watching the Dora Milaje fight just pushes my thrill button every single time. I really liked watching the fight on the train tracks themselves, though. Like, those maglev trains are so cool, and it's so awesome to see it depicted this way when most of our maglev trains in the real world just look like another version of the Disney World monorail. <laughs> I would much rather ride on these trains from my car to the park entrance <laughs> than the Disney monorail any day. I, I know that the suits are, like, they have the vibranium dampening field, but, like, you still have to feel 
falling a hundred feet, right? Like, yeah. They got up from that fall pretty fast, and I'm just like, you didn't take any kind of breather. You know, I'd be like, ah. It didn't phase you at all. Like I, I get that the ah, suit. I'm a bad hip. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I get that the suit absorbs a lot of blows, but you, you, you fell from pretty, pretty high up. I'm pretty sure y'all hit a couple rocks coming down. <laughs> You're telling me you didn't feel any of it? All right. And- and you landed on train tracks. <laughs> on train tracks, no less. But yeah, Mark, you were right earlier. This fight, although I do like the setting of the fight, the fight with the Dormilaje, just it wins hands down. It's real people with you know spears fighting each other. Yeah. It just looks actually so choreographed. Cool. You know, it looks mm-hmm. it, yeah, it looks amazing. Wakabi and the border troops surround Nakia, Shuri, Okoye, and the rest of the Dormilaje. But then Mbaku, who has apparently had a change of heart, arrives with the Jabari to turn the tide. Ross still needs to shoot down two more Wakandan aircraft, but another Wakandan fighter is firing upon Shuri's lab and threatens to destroy the flight simulator and Ross with it. But Ross is determined to stay in the simulator until the fleeing ships are destroyed. Just as the last Wakandan ship is about to leave Wakandan airspace, Ross rams it with his remote piloted ship and destroys it. Okoye confronts Wakabi and compels him to surrender, followed by the rest of the border tribe. At a key moment when the dampening fields are on, T'Challa is able to disarm Killmonger, take his weapon, and use it to stab him. He brings the dying Killmonger to the surface to witness one of the Wakandan sunsets Njobu told him about when he was a boy. T'Challa offers to try and save his life, but Killmonger refuses, instead telling him to bury him in the ocean with his ancestors who jumped from the slave ships, knowing that death was better than bondage. Killmonger removes the sword that's keeping him from bleeding out and dies. Yeah, the point that I was saving uh, was for when the Jabari show up. That whole scene like when the the dormilaje they have their shields up they've been caught they're in the kill circle so when they show up and you see oh man they have a a good mix men women coming in there just ready to to bust some heads i'm like yes jabari i love this (laughs) and like you kind of knew like you knew is mbaku really gonna run away from a fight no there has to be this ex machina in here somewhere (laughs) and of course mbaku for the win um, but my my main point for this is, you know, I'm not gonna lie, that end scene where they're sitting on the the cliff looking out uh, at Wakanda, it it made me tear up a little bit. I I might have I might have shed a few a few tears there because you know it wasn't necessarily the scene itself, but what really hit me was his last words, going back to what he was saying to his father, what his father was saying to him about him not being welcomed back. This kind of circles back to being black has its own identity. Well, I should say being black in America or being black abroad has its own sense of identity. So having his last words be bury me in the ocean with my ancestors that jumped from the ships because they knew death was better than bondage. Like that hit me like a freight train. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Especially when you know like the untold amount of people who, who genuinely died at sea in horrible conditions prior to then being taken from, from everything that they've known. And it's, it's a sad story. I shouldn't say story, it's a sad history. The fact that they bring it up in this movie, it just goes back to, to fortify some of the, the more subtle messages that they have throughout. If you didn't know the history or the importance of those last few words because i i've heard a lot of people saying oh it was just unnecessary it was unnecessary it was unnecessary but if you don't know the importance i would definitely encourage anybody to read about what happens or the conditions of those slave ships what it took for these people to be taken across the world from their home i know up in dc the african-american history museum they have a wonderful exhibit on that so yeah i mean it's a good point 
instead of you know criticizing it to to take some time and to to educate oneself. I have this recollection of in an interview somewhere it was either with Ryan Coogler or with Kevin Feige, I don't remember who. I think it was with Ryan Coogler. When they were doing like a read-through of the script, it may have been this line. It's, I think it may have been when they when they came to this line, Coogler had said, like he was sure that this was one of the things that was going to get cut, that Feige was going to say, no, we, we, we don't want to put that in the script. And he was kind of prepared to maybe either have to fight for it or just outright can it. And if I'm remembering this right, Kevin Feige actually said, no, I want you to make the movie about that line. Mm -hmm. And that's when Ryan Kugel kind of realized that he felt really comfortable, you know, doing everything that he did in this movie because it was like, I can say this. In a way, that statement is, in a lot of ways, it's it's the crux of the movie. It uh, is. Well, everything about Killmonger sort of leads up to this. Yeah. You know, the fact that he was in Oakland in the 90s, the fact that he was left alone and, you know, didn't fit in in America, wouldn't fit in in Wakanda, found solace in his own violence, essentially. Like, that's all he knew. That's all he could do. And I think, you know, it's sort of tragic, sympathetically tragic, that he probably knew this was how it was going to end. I don't think he really thought that he would be able to go to Wakanda, take control of the whole world and cause all these uprisings and what is he gonna do go and live a peaceful life in Wakanda Mm -hmm. like he's never known that there's no way he could imagine that for himself so I think this was the only way that his character would end and I think if he had to cut out that line everything that Killmonger did up to that point wouldn't have been as impactful Mm -hmm. Because you yeah. wouldn't have that final turn of the screw, the final click in his behavior. I mean, it's it's so much of his identity. Like, you're right, it's driven pretty much all of his actions. It's driven his father's actions and, you know, people before him. <laughs> I can't imagine a movie without it being in there. I really can't. I, I, I remember that interview. I'm happy that Kevin Feige said yes and that they, they continued with it. It's important because it's a reflection of how in the grand historical scheme of things, that's how this whole thing started. People being taken from Africa and brought over here on ships. I thought it was a, a very kind of poignant reminder. You know, he was trying to remedy the situation that we're still in. And that's This is how it started. I, I like that idea, you know, that this movie like this movie even being made is part of that remedy. Not only is it the fallout, but it's, it's also part of the remedy. T'Challa takes Shuri to Oakland, the apartment building where his father killed Njobu, and tells her that he has purchased that building and the surrounding buildings, which will be replaced by a Wakandan International Outreach Center. He has appointed Nakia to oversee social outreach, while Shuri will spearhead the Science Exchange Division. In a mid-credits scene, T'Challa addresses the United Nations and finally reveals Wakanda's true nature to the rest of the world. Oh, every time I watch this, I really wish that that one UN member who pipes up and he's like, oh, well, what does Wakanda have to offer the rest of the world? Oh, man. <laughs> I wish that they would have had, like, one of these Bugai spaceships just park <laughs> right on top of the building or, like, had some kind of, you know, something to show, just to shove it in that guy's face. Like, it was so unnecessary. <laughs> oh, so rude. I that That guy always pisses me off at the end of the movie. I like how the scene ended with them not having to, to say anything. We all kind of know what's coming. We already saw the Bugatti spaceship in the scene before. I like Ross's kind of knowing wink. <laughs> I was you before, and you know, hey, I know better now. <laughs> it's like a knowing like wink and a nod towards the audience. It's like, we know, and that's, it's the fact that I know. It's like, I want to prove this guy wrong so bad, man, but okay. 
We'll wait. Finally, in a post credit scene that I'm certain was made solely for Emily's amusement and delight, Bucky Barnes, now referred to by the Wakandans as the White Wolf, emerges from a hut in an isolated part of Wakanda. Shuri is there to continue overseeing his apparent deprogramming. Poor sad Bucky. <laughs> what did he say about Wakanda and Falcon and the Winter Soldier? That he had a little bit of peace in Wakanda? I guess if you find a bunch of little kids peaceful. <laughs> Never. And so there is the movie. This is the part of the show where we talk about characters and actors. Um, remember how I said earlier in the show that the presentation of Wakanda was the best thing about the film? Turns out I'm only half right. I think the other best thing about this movie is the cast. And, you know, it is stellar. And I think we've all alluded to that at various points in the show. So, of course, we have to start off with Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa, a.k.a. the Black Panther. He inhabited that character with tremendous grace and dignity and it just can't be said enough what a loss it is for all of us that he's gone now especially since he was just getting started yeah i think we were going to see incredible things from t'challa down the road and from chadwick obviously as for the film the trope of the newly minted ruler who's unsure of his readiness to take charge you know that's that's a well-trod trope but having said that i think bozeman does a really admirable job portraying the reluctant leader who goes on the journey in which he discovers exactly what kind of king he wants to be. Even if it flies in the face of tradition and his own dearly departed father, he injects the role with a certain likability and an earnestness that just um, makes you want to follow him and trust him. I think I told you about this in one of our chats about this movie, that of course I've seen movies or watched, you know, older movies where obviously the characters are, you know, long gone or whatever. But I think this might have been the first time that I watched Black Panther after Chadwick Boseman died. And so every time he was on the screen, which is a lot because he's the main character, I was thinking like, dang, you know, like, dang it, he's really gone. Mm -hmm. Besides, you know, we see him in Endgame and things like that. But this is really the last time in this universe that we see him. Even though I've seen this movie a million times, it was sort of hard to get around that for me. Of just knowing that, like, the next movie is going to be so incredibly different because he's not there. I know factually he's gone, but it's you watch this movie and the denial is still there. It's like, no, he can't be gone. He can't be gone. He is T'Challa. He is the king. He is the Black Panther. And, you know, and I guess that's kind of made even more so, you know, for those of us who've watched What If... Because he's makes he's made a few appearances in What If, and you know it's like oh he's, no he is still here here I can hear his voice he is still with us and it just kind of makes the, the realization that he's gone, uh, which you know was going to hit us like a brick when Wakanda Forever comes out, just that much more stark. Michael B. Jordan as Njadaka, aka Eric Killmonger Stevens. I first saw Michael B. Jordan in Creed like a lot of other people, and I, I thought he had tremendous presence in that movie, and I'm really glad that his career has taken off. Of course, I enjoy his overall performance in this film, and he does, as we've talked about, he does the angry stuff really well, of course, but it's the quieter, subtler moments, like when he's in the apartment in the ancestral plane, it's those moments that really give the character depth, I think, because that's where we see the pain that drives that anger. I remember... The first time I saw Michael B. Jordan act was um, in the Fantastic Four movie. Uh, that was the, that was your first time seeing him? Yeah, the one that I absolutely I'm, hated. I'm sorry. I mean, I haven't seen it yet, but I don't know one person who's seen it that liked it. So uh, I'm it, sorry. It was, it was honestly so forgettable that when I went into Black Panther, I was like, what? Oh, that I've seen you before. Weren't you in the other Marvel movie? But yeah, yeah, uh, he, he did a really good job. And I've liked him in... A lot of his other movies since Creed was amazing and 
you know, I think he, he still has a really bright career. He has said that, you know, in whatever capacity he might be able to come back, he said he would be very, very willing to come back to the MCU as Eric Steven. We see him in, uh, or hear him in, in uh, What If, which is really cool. With recent castings uh, for Wakanda whatever, I, uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Wakanda forever. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like we're going to be seeing him a lot sooner than we would have thought. Lupita Nyong'o as Nakia. What I like about Nakia, besides the fact that she's played by Lupita, who just seems like a genuinely, just absolutely lovely person, is that she serves up, I think, a nice counterpoint to Okoye. Whereas Okoye, by definition of her job, admittedly, is very serious and straight-laced and perhaps just a tad rigid. Nakia is also, perhaps by definition of her job, a bit more emotive and, and flexible in her beliefs. There's a certain free-spiritedness to her, and it just kind of makes sense that she feels called to help the people of the world, and I really do like the two vibranium arrowbees that she throws around in that final fight of the movie. I just think there's something really neat about those. Denai Gurira as Okoye. Okoye made my top five MCU characters list on one of our shows this summer, so I won't completely go through all that again. But I love Okoye because even though you do see her evolve over the course of the film, in that she goes from feeling duty-bound to support Killmonger, however reluctantly, to realizing that her nation needs him to go, there's something about her patriotism or her call to duty that kind of reminds me of, like, Worf in Star Trek. <laughs> she is somewhat Klingon-like in certain respects. Uh, there's something about the way that she values her honor that's really attractive to me. And of course, you know, I love watching her fight with that spear. Uh, her fighting in the casino in Busan is one of my favorite scenes in the film. And Denai Gurira is just awesome. You know, I, I loved her on The Walking Dead. Like I said, the rumor is she'll be headlining the Wakanda series that Marvel is planning for Disney Plus sometime in the future. I, you know, I've seen a lot of interviews with her. She just, she kind of reminds me of a young Alfred Woodard. And I, I really do need to see more of her work. I think something that I like about Okoye is also something that I like about Nakia in that the same way that Wakabi and Killmonger are two sides of the same coin, it kind of feels like Nakia and Okoye are two sides of the same coin. That they both are dedicated to Wakanda, but sort of treat it very differently. That Nakia understands that it's this sort of more fluid concept that if you truly believe that something is wrong, you're not duty-bound and honor-bound to stick with it. But Okoye mm -hmm. sees it differently. And I like that eventually Okoye comes around, but she's still very much on the side of, you know, there's duty and honor in this thing, and there's certain loyalty and respect that I have to have. And Nakia is able to sort of see around that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not that either one is better than the other. Like, I think both of those types of people need to be around if you're going to yeah. make decisions about a country. But well, I think they balance each other out really It's well. nice, yeah. too, that we have, frankly, enough women in the movie to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that oh you, can God, have yeah. Those, you can have those complicated characters. And there's still space for more. Like, there's still Shuri. There's still the Queen. Again, you know, when we were talking about because this is the only one like this movie is the only one of its kind it had to be perfect kind of thing that because there are so many different women and so many different sort of levels of the type of people that they are it's okay if they weren't perfect or if you didn't agree with them because you know there's somebody else you can agree with there's a variety of options for once you know i i never thought about this until you brought it up but yeah i feel like black panther definitely uh passes the bechdel test <laughs> like the fact that there's so many women in this movie and they have so much agency in them in and of themselves it it's nice it's nice yeah it's <laughs> it, just nice it's just it's nice. nice to have a choice 
you know? Yeah. Like, even though we're sort of stuck with this being the only one currently, it's nice to have a choice, at least with the women mm-hmm. inside the movie. The women characters in this movie are all, I mean, they're extraordinarily important. And they all have a lot of really important stuff to do in the movie. You just get the sense that this nation, although it's nominally run by a king, who you know happens to be a, a guy at this particular point in time, you can just sort of sense the, the influence and importance of women in guiding policy, keeping this place running. I mean, you, know, you have women on the council, you have the queen mother who is still revered. The greatest warrior in you know, all of Wakanda is, is Okoye is considered that. And she leads an army of women to protect the kings. It's a, you know, it's a wonderful, it's a, it's a really good thing to see. I feel like that's very intentional because like, you know, being in Western society, it's a very patriarchal society. But as soon as you get to African countries or just African culture in general or African American culture in general, just black culture in general, it's very matriarchal. Like even to like just the smallest familial unit, it's it's a very matriarchal society. And I don't know if you guys have ever taken the time to kind of delve into like power structures and like different tribes or or countries, but there are like the majority of like the queens that I can think of, they've been African queens. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the, the strongest battles have been fought by African female warriors, you know. So I feel like it was very intentional not only to have so much female representation, but I feel like it's again one of those like art reflecting life because it's yeah. it's not unheard of to have an African female leader, like historically. And yeah. it's not unheard of for familial units or for friend groups or for certain, you know, communities to be very female driven and led, especially within like the African American community. It's just it's a matriarchal society. I I know that, you know, people are like, Oh no, it's patriarchy, but it's like, oh, you know, there are pockets <laughs> here and there where being a woman is still you know, it, it carries some kind of weight. Letitia Wright as Shuri. So Cherokee, knowing that there will be no T'Challa in Black Panther Wakanda forever, and knowing what you and I certainly know about what they've done in the comics in the past when T'Challa has been unavailable, particularly in uh, the Hudlin run, if I'm not mistaken. Are you thinking what I'm thinking about the mantle of Black Panther? I, okay, (laughs) I was. I was for like the longest time I was until they had some of the casting come out for Wakanda Forever. And I was like, oh, hold up, wait a minute. And then on like one of my latest run-throughs of Black Panther, it was like this throwaway line, or it's not really a throwaway because we brought it up. But when uh, Queen Ramonda is going to Nakia saying, oh, you should take the herb. And I'm like, oh, is that like foreshadowing? Like, are they going to try and change it up just a bit so it's not Shuri? But maybe they're going to try and make Nakia? I don't know. I don't know either, because, you know, on the one hand, it seems like it would make sense for it to be Shuri, but like you said, on the other hand, you know, Lupita is now number one on the call sheet. (laughs) So, so, hmm. Well, that, and I feel like her, like, they've set up these two characters to be, like, so much themselves that I can't really see this Shuri becoming a Black Panther. I can see Nakia taking up that role, especially with how T'Challa has set up, you know, we're going to be going out more as you know an ambassadorial kind of role so maybe Nakia is going to be a better fit the world knows the world knows that there's a black panther now (laughs) so like there's no real point in trying to hide it so maybe they I don't know I I'm going to be interested to see what they do I would be shocked kind of to see if that's the route that they're going to take now but if you would have asked me like a year or two years ago I was like no Shuri Black Panther 
that's it. That's that's the like the only route. And you know, knowing what we know about you know, her being injured on set doing apparently some sort of stunt in Boston, you know, yeah. it's kind of it kind of makes me wonder what kind what kind of stunt. Are we, what like, kind of uh, stunts are you doing? What kind of stunts? Are, what, what are you doing that's going to get that's getting you hurt? Black Panther worthy stunts? I don't know. Uh, maybe she's the one jumping from a car to a billboard sign <laughs> <laughs> with no like with no C- with no CGI yeah. this time. No CGI. She's just tearing up Busan. Winston Duke as Mbaku. I don't think I mentioned Mbaku in my top characters. The he was in my honorable mentions. And honestly, I love Mbaku. He's so funny and Winston Duke is so great at being this sort of larger than life kind of king. You know, you know me and my fanfiction and there are some great fanfics that expand on Mbaku and what we see in the movies and make his character even better, I believe. Um, you know, maybe we'll get more of him in the second Black Panther movie. I sure hope so. Well, he's he's definitely in it. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he has a significant role if the succession of the throne ends up being a major plot point in that movie. We said this already, he definitely steals a, a lot of scenes in this movie. You know, the bit with Ross, you know, feeding him to Baku's kids, that of course is funny, as is the whole, you know, are you done, bit. <laughs> and I love how, you know, after insisting vehemently that he won't help T'Challa fight Killmonger, he changes his mind and shows up at just the right moment, very dramatically. Like, you know he wasn't going to pass up either a good fight or an opportunity to, like, totally save the day. Just know it. He, there's no way in the world, in the world, that he would have passed up the opportunity to save the Black Panther, to save the day. It's on brand for, for Mbaku to try and one-up the Black Panther, and I yeah, love it. That's true. Angela Bassett as Queen Ramonda. This film is blessed with not one, but two veteran actors gracing the call sheet. Angela Bassett is the first, and uh, she is just so regal as the Queen Mother. She's, I think she's perfect for the role. Uh, and you can totally see her being the mother of both T'Challa and Shuri. And you can see the genesis of T'Challa's strength and nobility and the intelligence and the headstrong character of Shuri embodied in her. I must confess, I've never seen What's Love Got to Do With It, and now I feel like I really need to correct that oversight. Here's a deep cut for you. Check out Angela Bassett in the 1995 sci-fi thriller Strange Days with Ray Fiennes. It's one of those underrated gems of the 90s. You know what's funny is that I think both of the veteran actors they have in this movie were both in ER. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, Angela Bassett and was I forgot she was. And I forgot she was on the yard. Forrest Whitaker right. was a mm-hmm. patient. That's right. I Although, I mean, was... isn't every everybody who was even vaguely alive and acting in the 90s was in ER? Has been in ER at least once. Six but degrees yeah. of ER in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, Mark, I'm going to need you to, to go back and watch what's love got to do with it, because she is amazing. She is an icon. I love Angela Bassett. I love Tina Turner. And I've never seen that movie, so I think, all right, that's going to move up my list. Got to be on the list. list. But yeah, no, I I love her. She is amazing. She is one of my favorite actresses. So yeah, yeah. The fact that she, like, again, like I said earlier, like at the very beginning, it's like, you're telling me there's a movie with her and? (laughs) It's like just her headlining a movie. I'm going to be there. Martin Freeman as Agent Everett K. Ross. I'm not entirely sure what they were looking for with Everett Ross, except for, you know, to be one of the token white characters, you know, a little twist on the normal token black character. But I actually really liked him. You know, obviously not more than I liked the main characters, Um, but he did a way better job in this movie, I think, than he did in Civil War. And I think because there was so much going on in Civil War, the characters that they did introduce needed a little bit more work in the next movie that they were in because... We were busy in Civil War. Um, <laughs> Extremely busy. <laughs> but Martin Freeman is just a tiny little angry and annoyed man. And you know what? 
as an angry and little annoyed lady, I feel that in my soul. <laughs> I understand where he's coming from perfectly. Agent Ross was created for the comics by Christopher Priest in his highly touted run on the Black Panther comic in the late 90s. Frankly, I did not really like that run all that much. And frankly, I think Ross was a big reason why I didn't like that run. He was portrayed as the framing device for most of the book. He was kind of like the narrator of everything that was going on, which was, I thought, kind of a weird creative choice to begin with. And he was this very kind of, from what I remember, lampoonish, caricature-ish kind of CIA agent who was just kind of an idiot. Frankly, I'm a little surprised that they put him in this movie, but I'm, I'm kind of glad that when they did, they made him a more, a more sympathetic and less stupid frankly, character. To your point, Emily, I guess I have a little sympathy for him. I mean, this is the second time in a week <laughs> that Ross has simply been trying to do his job as a good little American intelligence operative, only to have the king of Wakanda get in the way. <laughs> in fact, I love that double take he does in the casino when he sees T'Challa. It's like, him again? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Martin Freeman was adamant about not playing a quote-unquote goofy white guy in a cast of almost all-black characters, and Ryan Coogler agreed with him. Ross's he's kind of on a journey uh, in this film himself because he starts off as this sort of sort of an antagonist you know he's an actor working essentially for the forces that Killmonger is railing against and the kind of person who would probably just as soon have gone off on some sort of covert mission for the CIA to infiltrate Wakanda and spy on them but by the end of the film you know, having worked with the Wakandans and gone through this experience with them he's less inclined to view them as you know either and you know other or just as another superpower that he has to keep tabs on. And I think he develops a genuine respect for them and, you know, won't automatically ignore their interests in the future. You know, when Nakia tells the Queen that, you know, he's a friend of T'Challa's, I mean, she means that sincerely. Of course, he did save her life, but that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, I, I wasn't a fan of, uh... <laughs> of Agent Ross in that comic either. And you're right, it's like it's so weird to have this Black Panther story just told from this guy's perspective and I'm like, mm, no, yeah. this isn't right. Yeah, this and it just right. It sucks that I kind of ended up hating the whole run because of that, but it's just it was such a big part of that book. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, I feel like, you know, this movie remedies that character a lot and the fact that they got Martin Freeman to play this role makes it even better. I mean, as soon as I saw that he was playing Agent Ross in, like, Civil War, I was like, oh, what? You got Martin Freeman to play in a Marvel movie? Say less. Because <laughs> I love him. Like, again, you know, I've, I've seen most of his movies, most of his TV shows. Of course, I said, you know, one of the first times I've ever seen him was in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, where he's just playing this poor, disheveled guy. Just the world is about to end and he is just fed up with life. And that's kind of his role for most of his shows. Yeah. So to see him actually like, you know, put on a suit and tie and it's like, I'm here to do like government stuff. I was like, yes. It shows his range as an actor and the fact that he can go from disheveled bachelor pad looking guy to, you know, a detective to a, a CIA. <laughs> yeah, to a hobbit, to a CIA agent. It does well and I feel like if they had to have picked you know this low-key relatable white guy for this predominantly black casted movie they did a good job he's funny enough that he can add to the comedic moments without overstepping or without overshadowing the rest of the cast so I think he did a good job it helped to have some sort of a, you know, fish out of water perspective, and he fills that role perfectly. Just his look, just the look, he kind of just shoots people, just completely bewildered. A lot of his acting 
was just in the face, and he has such an animated face. Yes. <laughs> Look, I talk about that he gives T'Challa in the casino, just the double take. It just, it just yeah. it says everything right there. It's like, oh my god, again? <laughs> Inside of a week? <laughs> I know, and you know, it's funny because, of course, these movies come out so far apart from each other, so I, I, I do forget, like, it's only been, like, two weeks. Daniel Kaluuya as Wakabi. I kind of want to know more about Wakabi myself. First of all, it's implied that he's T'Challa's best friend, but they don't really do much in the movie to truly convey that. Second of all, to Emily's point earlier, was he really that easily seduced by Killmonger? I get that Claw killed his parents, but the film doesn't do a very good job showing us how that translates into I want to help this guy I barely know become king and have Wakanda take over the world. Well, I'm thinking maybe, again, the fact that sort of Killmonger was always going to end up the way he ended up, that, you know, it's possible that Wakabi kind of always wanted it to go that way. Like, Mm. he was sort of maybe hoping, because, you know, he was saying that he thought that Wakanda shouldn't open up to the world except to change it. Like, he was already saying that before Killmonger showed up. And so I think he just saw Killmonger as a, you know, a way to get there. I feel like his character... Of course, I would want to learn more about his role, but I feel like it's been so self-serving this whole time. Like, I feel like, you know, with his parents being killed by Claw, that it's just, I'm going to pay my allegiance to the person I think is best going to get revenge for me. Uh, I'm going to align myself with the strongest woman here so that I can have more sway in the government. I am going to Yeah, just like whoever is helping me get to where I want to be or to the top, you know? So it's his character is interesting. And it's one of the reasons why I would love to see like more of a backstory on him. What are his motivations? Are they completely self-serving or is he just like this really complex character? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Personally, I think it's just self-serving and that's why all of his interactions kind of piss me off. Yeah, I think you finally kind of sort of named what it is about him that just always irks me. Yeah, that's, it's, it's kind of like he's just sort of riding people's coattails. Yeah, like it's not necessarily like that, that sniveling wormtail type character because he does carry himself as like, you know, this leader, this person with power and ambition. But low-key, he's just riding people's coattails. Mm-hmm. Forrest Whitaker as Zuri. It's actually interesting to see Forrest Whitaker for me in this movie as a mostly somewhat good guy. You know, the other two times that I've seen him are in ER where he played a jilted patient who tried to kill a doctor after he let him languish in the ER while having a stroke. And in The Last King of Scotland where he played Idi Amin, the then dictator of Uganda, who, as you can guess, is definitely not a good dude. You know, but I liked that... In this movie, I got to see him as complicated, you know, in the sense that he's had this secret all this time about what happened in Oakland, but he can't ever say it because you can't disobey the king. You know, I think he's a lot like Okoye in that way, that had it been Okoye in his Mm. shoes, she would have done the same exact thing, you know? And so it's actually kind of nice to see the same way that we can see the flip side of Nakia and Okoye. You can also see sort of what Okoye could have become. I was gonna say like that's what that's probably one of the reasons why I didn't like T'Chaka's response to T'Challa when he confronted him because T'Chaka's response or you know he's the truth that I chose to omit right he's still not taking responsibility for his past actions whereas you have Zuri turns into him I don't want to say turns into a martyr that's not the right word but he he owns up he's like yeah. I am one of the reasons why your father's dead 
you can take my life if that's gonna help the situation. So in, in some regards, he owns up. And I feel like Forrest Whitaker is a good enough actor to carry that kind of role. You know, like he, he has a presence. I, most of the movies I've seen him in, he's always been like this doting father, grandfather type figure. So he has this range where it's like, I can see him being a bad guy, but I can also see him trying to be like this reluctant good guy. Or I can see him trying to own up to past mistakes and be this respectable character. Whereas T'Chaka is just like, oh yeah, sorry I didn't tell you that. <laughs> Zuri is genuinely remorseful about what happened. He, he offers himself up. He's willing to pay the ultimate price for this. Even though both he, you know, by the end of the movie, both he and T'Chaka are dead, T'Chaka still isn't even, you know, willing to really admit that what he did was wrong. And Zuri, I don't know if he ever outwardly says it, but he comes as close as we'll ever get to an admission of guilt. Take me, I'm the reason your father's dead. Andy Serkis as Ulysses Claw. I don't actually have any feelings towards Ulysses Claw one way or the other, I guess surprisingly. Sort of what I did like about him, I already mentioned before, that I just liked how completely unhinged he was. In the Black Widow episode, we talked about character alignments with Rick Mason. You know, we could definitely do that here. Claw is kind of like Mason, in that he can get anything and do anything for someone as long as they pay him enough, but instead of being a true neutral character like Mason is, he's definitely evil. There is nothing good in that guy at all. And you know, oh, yeah. Andy Serkis, it truly feels like he's all just chaos. He kind of reminds me of Taika Waititi in that way. <laughs> <laughs> just like a fun chaos, little like a chaos fairy in the garden. Just having <laughs> a fun game, like a fun game. And being so, Ulysses Claw, he's able to be the sort of bonker side that I don't think he would allow himself to be. So if you had to, to make an alignment between Claw and Killmonger, who would you say was like the chaotic evil and who's the chaotic neutral? I would say that Killmonger is actually the neutral. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like I would kind of agree. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if those are the only two options. Because I would say that Killmonger would be like a lawful good. Or a lawful evil, sorry. I was thinking I would lawful say evil. That Killmonger a, would be a lawful a, evil and Ulysses okay. Claw would be a evil evil. Whatever the other one is. <laughs> the definitely. chaotic evil and lawful. Yeah. Okay, that, that definitely makes way more sense. That feels closer to the right answer <laughs> you know all i can say is that i just think it's awesome that we get to see andy circus not wearing a green spandex motion capture suit with little ping pong balls velcroed to it i got right <laughs> like i forget sometimes i was like oh yeah that's what you actually look like so this is the part of the podcast that i often talk about music for the film I think the orchestral score by Ludwig Göransson is majestic and superb. Easily one of the best Marvel scores that there is. Um, Göransson's a longtime collaborator of Ryan Coogler's. Uh, I believe they were friends at USC. That's how they met. Of course, when most people think of the music of Black Panther, they usually think of the soundtrack album that was curated by Kendrick Lamar. I might let the two of you talk about that a little more, even though I, I have the album and I've listened to it a number of times. I'm 48 years old. I'm just not as fond of a lot of hip hop music that was recorded after 1991 because, you know, I'm a dinosaur. So I feel like maybe I'm not qualified to be talking about that album, but I do like a lot of the R&B vocal tracks on there. You know, All the Stars is of course, I think a great song and uh, The Weeknd's Pray For Me is really cool. Those are my two favorite tracks on that album. I really like the album because I kind of like that it's a mixtape for the movie, but I think more movies should have mixtapes like this, honestly. Oh yeah. This album, 
is fire. Mm -hmm. I love it. I cannot tell you how many times <laughs> I've listened to most of the songs, all the songs, honestly. Um, the one I'm thinking of is King's Dead. It's uh, Kendrick Lamar, Future. Like, I had that song on repeat for like months, months. I still listen to it. It's so good. I like the Shang-Chi one a lot. And of course, appropriately, it's a lot of Asian hip hop and like K-pop and things like that. I haven't, I haven't heard the soundtrack for that one yet. So that I have to check that one out. And that is our review for Black Panther. We are, we made it. <laughs> we made it. That was epic. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Cherokee, for joining us. That was a really special, special review, I think. Just a quick little wrap up. We will uh, eventually be doing uh, our Spider-Man Homecoming review at some point in the not too distant future, but that one may not actually drop until sometime in early 2022. Emily and I have had uh, a lot going on in our lives lately. It's been hard to find some time to, to, to work on the podcast the way we really want to work on it. So we may be slowing down a little bit. We're not going away. We're just going to take a little more time between episodes, I think. So our Spider-Man Homecoming review probably will not drop until sometime in, in the new year, but we will we will get there, I promise you. It will come out. We well, and I want to clarify that it's not going to take three months to get an episode out, just that, you know, we're taking a holiday vacation, you know, like yeah. everybody does. Yeah, some of, some, of it is, some of it is vacation. Some of it is we just need a little more time. Some of it is that I'm probably going to start uh, doing some uh, editing of the shows myself, which means it's going to take forever, <laughs> seemingly, but it'll be a good learning experience for me and i'm sure emily will appreciate the break and uh yeah sometime for the holidays coming up we will definitely be back at some point in the not too distant future not too distant future with our a review of spider-man homecoming until then thank you all for listening thank you all for joining this and uh, we bid you all a good day good evening we'll see you around take Have care a good night bye